Thank you, Jonathan. I love the way people in this church pray for me. Every time anything goes well, I think that's why. So if things ever don't go well, well, just start praying more. Um, if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to be talking this morning again. We're going to finish up where we started last week. We're going to be considering the fact that spiritual maturity is essential in leaders. And we're going to talk a little bit about what spiritual maturity is again today. Here, let's see if we can, are we working? There we go. All right. Um, so we're going to be talking about spiritual leadership. Leadership is critical, very important, because the Bible tells us that when we're fully trained, we will be like our leaders. And leadership is, it, it's this pitfall. It's, it's a very tight road to walk. It is so easy um, for us, as we consider leadership, to get off to the right or off to the left. As you read through the Bible, God is very clear. Don't depart to the right or to the left. And here's one of the things that happens with leadership, and it's why the things we're talking about are so important, is there are churches who, when they're selecting leaders and when they're considering people for positions of leadership, they disregard what the Bible says. They don't read it. They don't think about what God says the character of a person is supposed to be like. And they disregard it because they just feel like, oh, man, nobody can live up to this stuff. There's nobody actually like that. A lot of times people are just filled with spiritual compromise in their own life. They don't prioritize God. Their lives are full of sin. And so when they're picking leaders, sin's not a big deal. Uh, a lack of spiritual faithfulness is not a big deal in leaders' lives because it's not a big deal in their own life. And so you have churches that compromise on what God says leaders are supposed to be. Then there's other churches who say, no, we are going to follow God's qualifications exactly. We are going to go through. We are going to scrutinize people. And it can be, churches can become a very judgmental place, a very harsh place, where everybody pretends that everything is okay. And nobody would dare to mention a failure or a struggle in their life. And so you have people in leadership who are not genuinely mature. They're people who pretend well. And so that's, that's another dilemma that happens. And along with that, people who, when they are put in positions of spiritual leadership, they are destroyed by it. And they're destroyed by it because they say, you know, God is the one who ultimately chooses leaders. And when a leader is speaking or when a leader is doing something, we follow the authorities that God puts in our life. And church leaders are authorities. If you read your Bible, we're supposed to submit to those who have charge over us in the Lord. And so there's people who learn a lot about what it means to honor the God-ordained authority. And so as they're learning about this God-ordained authority, and then they're looking at spiritual qualifications, and then somebody says, hey, will you be an elder? Uh, somebody asks them to serve in a position of leadership, and they think, wow, I'm pretty amazing. I'm kind of like the Navy SEAL of Christianity. And they start to feel like, I'm awesome, I'm amazing, actually, I'm better than everyone else, I'm smarter than everybody else, and that's why they've asked me to serve as a leader. And so you have people that the moment that they're put in leadership, they become prideful, they're arrogant, they're hard on people, they see themselves as above people. And I actually heard a gentleman one time um, just talking about how God had gifted him as a leader, and he says, I have the, the gift of discernment, God's gifted me with that. And then he would speak into people's lives. And his attitude was, I'm an authority. 
I'm a person that God has put in a position of leadership. If you don't listen to me, you are ignoring God. It kind of sounded like Acts chapter 5 where Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and then later, or, and then later he says, you've lied to God. You know, that equation between the Holy Spirit and God. And you have this person actually speaking and saying, if you ignore me, you are ignoring God. And, and that is devastating. It is destructive. And that is Satan's plan. Let's take people who don't actually honor God in their own life and put them in leadership. Or... Let's take people, put them in leadership, and now we have prideful people who are arrogant, who are hard on people, and who God is against. Now, can you see how significant um, spiritual leadership is? It is incredibly important. One of the things that's important for us to know is that there's nothing that God requires of leaders that he doesn't require actually of every Christian. Um, as we read these passages, this is Jesus talking. Jesus says, for I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Leaders are examples of what every one of us should be like. The Apostle Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So leaders are supposed to be people who are striving to be like Christ, and then we're supposed to like we're looking at our leaders, they are a living example of what Jesus is like. And then Philippians 3.17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the examples that you have in us. So one of the things I've discovered is when you are working really hard on who God wants you to be, you will recognize another person who is working really hard on being who God wants them to be. When you take humility seriously in your life, you'll recognize humility in the life of another. When you take obedience seriously in your life, you will recognize obedience in the life of another. The other thing that happens is if you're serious about Matthew 7, where you're getting the log at Matthew 7, 1 through 5, you're getting the log out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in someone else's, when you're actually serious about that, you won't be hard on your leaders. You won't scrutinize them. You won't be judgmental. You're going to be gracious and merciful. You're going to see flaws and failures in your leaders' lives, and you're just going to know, hey, that's the reality of life. We all struggle. We all fail. And so when we're striving to be who we should be, that helps us select leaders. Now, this is very important for our church because we're a congregational church. We're in the EFCA. And one of the things that we do is we all select the leaders that are going to be leading us. And the elders and the other leaders also speak into that. So this is critical. It's important. And instead of um, having arrogant leaders that feel like God works through authority, I am in authority. Therefore, when I speak, God is speaking. Or, or leaders who actually disregard what God says and then attribute their actions and behaviors to God himself. It's like, no, that's not God. That's sinful. But God's sovereign. God works through leaders. Yeah. And God was sovereign through all kinds of sinful people in the Old Testament. God's still sovereign. That does not dis, discount your sinful behavior. And think about Genesis, right, with Joseph. 
where Joseph says to his brothers, uh, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. I mean, God's being sovereign, right? As those brothers commit terrible sins. And there are many leaders who commit terrible sins, but attribute their behavior to God because, simply because they're in leadership and God sovereignly put them there. See, that's terrible. That's destructive. On the other hand, Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus died for you. You belong to God. You don't belong to the elders. You don't belong to the pastors. You, applaud, you belong to God. It's kind of like if you think about it this way, could you imagine uh, somebody drops their kids off in Sunday school and the kids get out of the classroom and kind of run off into the street and just get hit by a car? And the Sunday school teacher's just like, well, you know, hey, it's not my problem. That's not my kid. Or they're like, if I go get that kid, he's going to start screaming. He's going to be mad that I'm stopping him from going out into the street. Like, how would a parent feel about a teacher who allowed their kid to walk into destruction? Be pretty upset about it, right? That is how God feels about elders when a person in the church is pursuing an unbiblical divorce, when a person in the church is disregarding God in their life, when a person in the church is pursuing some kind of sinful behavior and the leaders just go, ah, not my problem, I'm not aware of it, I don't really know about it. Um, you know, it's like, hey, everybody's kind of on their own. That's how God feels about leaders who neglect to care for people spiritually, who neglect to be willing to have people be mad at them because they're speaking into their life about significant things. Or um, you're a Sunday school teacher and some kid's talking, you're just irritated with the kid. Man, this kid, get this kid away from me. I, they're irritating me. That's how God feels, how the way a parent would feel if somebody treated their kid that way. That's how God feels when church leaders are irritated and impatient and ungracious toward people in the church. So who are we looking for? We're looking for humble people who are faithful. And this morning, we're going to continue our list of just looking at what does the Bible describe? What does it say are the qualities of spiritual maturity? How do you recognize these things? How do you see them? That's what we'll be digging into this morning. And I want to start again by just reading the two passages. A lot of times people want to skip things in the Bible because they don't like how they sound. They're kind of like, ooh, that hurts. But that's one of the things that we'll just, we're going to end this morning with the fact that leaders are not here to co come up with their own stuff. We don't make up our own religious views. We don't come up with our own standards. We're just people who open up the Bible. We read it. We say what God says because this is his thing. It's not ours. And we humbly serve on his behalf. So let's just read these two passages. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. It says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, 
not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation for, with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's look again at Titus chapter 1, verse 5. So that's Paul writing to Timothy. He was a pastor in Ephesus. And now Paul's going to write to another pastor, um, Titus. And he was a pastor in the, on the island of Crete. And so he's going to write to him here. This is what he says, Titus 1, 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also refute those who contradict it. These are things that God requires of leaders. And when we're selecting leaders, we're going to take those verses and just make a list. And each of us are going to check, check off our leaders. Yes, we see this quality in their life. No, we don't see this quality in their life. Or we're not aware of whether or not this quality is in their life. Because in this church, we're not going to just set aside what God says and just do whatever we feel is best. We're here to honor the Lord and to do things the way he tells us to do them. So let's just quickly review. Um, these are the marks of spiritual maturity. The first thing is a godly desire and motivation. A godly desire and motivation. Um, leaders need to see the spiritual needs and have a desire to care for the people that they're ministering to. Uh, Matthew 9.36, I just love this. Um, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We need shepherds who look at people who are struggling, whose lives are, are in difficult situations in disarray and have compassion for them and realize that they need guidance, realize that they need to obey God in their life. And then he goes on and he says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. So there's Jesus getting his disciples saying, man, there's people out there that need help. Pray that God would send someone to help them. I was talking to somebody yesterday at a funeral, and, and something kind of went wrong, and they were, they were giving some guidance. Hey, get closer to the mic. And one of the things that they said was uh, they said, I'm thinking, man, somebody should do something about this. <laughs> and then they said, and then I realized I'm somebody. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, pray that God will send somebody into the harvest. And they need to sit there and realize, well, 
that's me. I should go into the harvest. So we need leaders who have a desire to love and care for people. And then Jeremiah 5.45, and you can also just, um, elders are not supposed to be people who love money. Um, you don't do ministry because you want money. Um, not people who are greedy for gain. The, the Pharisees loved the respectful greetings and seats of prominence. Um, nobody should be a leader in ministry because they gravitate toward those types of things. Uh, Jeremiah says it this way, Jeremiah 45.5, but are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. We don't want self-seeking people in positions of leadership. Here's a second thing, a reverence for God in marriage. A reverence for God in marriage. I always tell people when you're getting married, probably the closest thing that you could find to a marriage relationship is the relationship with your parents. Because your parents are kind of committed to you. They're stuck with you, right? Like you're in the same family. Like they can't get rid of you. So you're not insecure about your standing with them. You're not afraid that you'll just be tossed. And that has a tendency to make us take people for granted also, you're living in close proximity with people, which makes the irritating things that they do even more irritating. Because if you got an irritating friend, you could just go home. But what about when the irritation is in your home? And so uh, families are not as, parents, parent-kid relationships are not as challenging as marriage. Marriage, I think, is the most challenging human relationship. And it's interesting in both of these passages that God says, the husband of one wife, it is the first thing mentioned in both of those lists. We need to, as leaders, we need to look at people that prioritize their marriage, that treat their marriage with a reverence for God. We have a culture of people who just think, oh, man, we were in love. We, we couldn't stay apart. We just we fell in love with each other. And you'll actually hear people say, oh, I should get divorced because we're just not in love anymore. I fell out of love. People think, um, they approach marriage and they think that it's just like this magical thing that if you have it, wonderful, and if you don't, you don't. If you're married, then that's the person God wants you to be married to. And everything wrong with them is part of God's gift to you. And one of the things that you need to do in your marriage, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it, but it is. Because when your spouse... When the things that are wrong with your spouse make your life difficult, it gives you an opportunity to obey God. When your spouse does something evil to you, that's, that's awesome. Because then you get to think about the passage where God says, return good for evil. So now you live with somebody who's a jerk to you, and you get to be kind to them and be loving to them in spite of what they do to you. And that's an opportunity to obey God. That is a gift that you have to obey God. When you're angry and frustrated and do things that you shouldn't do, and then you think to yourself, but you know what? I love God, and God says I need to confess, and I need to repent, and I need to be humble, and I need to seek restoration. And so that is an opportunity for you when you go the wrong direction to do what you're supposed to do. Even the challenges in marriage are a gift. If, if you're the husband in your family, and by the way, um, everybody pursues the other person's well-being. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're a wife, 
It is your job to pursue your husband's spiritual growth, to pray for him, to encourage him, to challenge him, to obey God. The greatest gift you give yourself in marriage is to pursue the spiritual well-being and maturity of your spouse. But God has designated as the leader of the home the husband. That doesn't mean wives have no responsibility. They're just kind of on their own and everything falls on the husband. No, everybody pursues everybody's responsibility, everybody's spiritual well-being. But one of the things that you hear is if it's, if it's everybody's job, it's what? It's nobody's job. And God picks whose job it is. And God says if you're the husband, you are to be the spiritual leader of your home. It is your job to, to pursue your wife's spiritual best interests. It is your job. You're, you're the, the, the husband is the head of the wife the way Christ is the head of the church. Who's the leader in the church? It's clear. And there's, there's, we won't even get into the gymnastics people do uh, with that passage to try to make that not a leadership thing, that head means source instead of leadership, and that's wrong. It means leadership. And so the, God has just designated, if you're a husband, the spiritual well-being of your home is your responsibility. And, and that in no way reduces anybody's participation in the godliness in a home. I, I've told kids for years, um, if your parents are not honoring the Lord as a kid, it is your job to be a spiritual and example and to pray and to encourage and help your parents be godly. Yes, they're your leaders, but it is your job to pursue their spiritual well-being, to pray for them, to encourage them. There's times that my kids have said, Dad, this is what God says. It doesn't look like you're doing that. <laughs> and you know what my job is when they say that? Don't talk to me. I'm the dad. No. We all submit to Scripture, and it's everybody's job to pursue other people's spiritual well-being. And so leaders... A person who's fit for leadership is a person who approaches his marriage with reverence, recognizing this is not just about me. The Bible says that, that, the, that, that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And a person who says, I have to have a good marriage. I have to love my wife the way Christ loved the church. Otherwise, how will people know how Christ loves the church? I have to be a spiritual leader because this is actually what God calls me to. And so people fit for leadership. And by the way, um, God, there are certain things. We'll talk about this in the future, but God intends in a sense for everybody to be a leader everywhere. And if you're going to take a man and put him in a position of leadership, he needs to be a person who approaches his marriage with reverence. If we're going to take a lady and say, here, lead this Bible study. Here, go do this thing. Needs to be a lady who views her marriage with an attitude of reverence. And often we just take people who disregard God in their life, we put them in charge of things, and we wonder why things don't go well. This is a test. Uh, this is an area where um, what you really believe and what you're com really committed to shows itself because it's where we have incredible emotions. Uh, this, the uh, third thing, and this is all review, by the way, the third thing is that an effective, loving, and shepherding heart toward his family. Um, if you don't love your kids enough to shepherd them, you will not love people in the church well enough to shepherd them. 
Um, and, and by the way, in the shepherding of our kids, we're not trying to make our kids conform. We're not focused on their behavior. We don't care why you do it. We just need to figure out how to make you do these good things. I don't want to look bad in front of people. I don't want to have problems. If you're a bad kid, it creates problems for me in my life. I just want you to conform. We are not focused on external behavior because that's not Christianity. We are focused on the heart. What did Jesus say about obedience? John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey me. As a parent, everything that we do in our kids' lives is to encourage them and train them and help them to love God. We're, we're, we're telling them, we're helping them think about life. We're saying as you go through life, the, the greatest gift you give yourself is to love God, to honor him, to obey him. And that's what we're teaching our kids. And behavior is never the point. It is a window into the heart. When you have kids that are they're sitting around and they, they want to play with the toys, they want the toys for themselves and they don't want to share, that's a kid who does not understand that people are made in God's image and that part of how we love God is to love people. And if you don't love your brother whom you have seen, you can't love God whom you haven't seen. And there's a lot of people that they just give their kids toys, they give their kids whatever they want because they just want them to stop whatever drama is going on. You know, the kid in the store screaming, saying, give me this thing. And then the mom just gives it to him to shut him up. Instead of saying, no, this is a window and I need to use this as an opportunity to help you think about your need for Christ and what obedience looks like in life. And so parenting is aiming and helping kids to love God. And we just lay that stuff out. We put that before them. And one of the things we do is we point out how life works. Because we're not in control of our kids, and we can't make our kids obey. But at least we want to lay a foundation. So one of the things that we do is in parenting and shepherding kids is we help them create habits that will bless them in their life in the future. And even taking kids and saying, every day you have to read your Bible in the morning, and this is what you're going to do, and then we're going to sit down, we're going to talk about it. And even though your kids aren't Christians, and even though they may not like to read the Bible, we don't try to make this a torturous thing where we're punishing our kids with the Bible, but we just create these habits so that when they do come to know the Lord, and when God does get a hold of their heart, they've already developed this habit, and it's easier to do the right thing. When they come to know the Lord, we've already trained them. We've taught them to think about what God says. We've taught them to think about life so that when they come to know the Lord, they're not starting from zero. They already understand the things of God and the way that life works. And so we're training our kids. We're, we're, we're creating habits in their life before they love the Lord, whether or not they love the Lord, because that's part of what God intends for us to do in our parenting. The other thing that we're doing is we're helping our kids realize God loves us and he's smarter than everyone else. So if you, do, if you disregard God in these areas, your life's going to be a mess. This is going to go wrong. This is going to go wrong. That's going to go wrong. Because we don't want kids who grow up, disregard everything God says, and then wonder, why is my life a mess? We want kids growing up, and when they disregard God, they go, yeah, yeah, I'm suffering, I got fired, and I'm having legal problems, and I got this issue in my life, and I got this issue in my life. Well, what would I expect? I've been blowing God off in my life. So that in someday in the future, someday when you're not there to speak to them, someday when you're not there to encourage them, that they can rely on all those things that they've learned and that they can come to Christ. 
One of the other things that is so significant that we do in our parenting is that we model God's grace and love. And by the way, that's also important in marriage. Like when we recognize that the most important thing in anybody's life is their relationship with God. That is what we all need to recognize. And so what ends up happening sometimes is we can be so hard on our kids that when they do the wrong thing, when they're struggling with sin issues in their life and they bring those up, we're hard on them. And instead of meeting that with God's grace and mercy and love and encouragement and guiding them to the truth, we have kids who lie to us about things. Because, man, if I tell my parents, oh, it's going to be so hard on me, or husbands and wives who when they do something that they shouldn't do, they compound that. They lie about it. They, they hide it. Why? Because if they talk about it with their spouse, if they own up to it, it's going to be this very negative experience. And there's this pressure to do the wrong thing. And as parents and as spouses, when we recognize that the greatest gift we give ourselves is not a spouse who loves us, it's not kids who love us, it's not kids who do what we want them to do, the greatest gift we give ourselves is a spouse who loves God and kids who love God. And what that means is when your spouse does something terrible, you are going to meet that with grace and mercy and compassion because you, you want the path to pleasing God to be as easy as possible. Not like these, how dare you treat me that way. It's going to take me a while to get over how you spoke to me instead of just pouring out God's grace and mercy and love. And so in our kids' lives, we're showing them the whole time that they're growing up, this is what God's grace and mercy looks like. No matter what goes wrong in your life, you can come to me because I love you, I care about you, I'll forgive you. Whatever goes wrong will help put those pieces back together. If you've been disobeying God, let's get back on the path of obeying God. And we teach them to see what God's grace and mercy and love and forgiveness are like. And so those are the things that godly, faithful, mature, effective, spiritually mature people do in their marriage and in their parenting. What's interesting in this whole parenting thing is more words are given to parenting than any other quality. Why? It's because who you are at home is who you really are. All the qualities that, that make people blessed parents are also people, the qualities that make people good elders, good leaders in church, good disciplers, because that's actually the purpose of your life. Disciple your kids. And that's what do we do in the church? We disciple people in the church. Okay. Uh, that was all review. <laughs> that's okay. There was some extra stuff in there we didn't cover last week. So here's the... The next thing, a life of spiritual practice. Um, spiritually mature people have a life of spiritual practice. There's two, two elements of this practice. One practice is what you actually do. It's the way that you live. The other practice is that we are practicing things. So we have habits in the way we live our life, but we're also identifying areas of struggle and we are practicing to do the things that God wants us to do. If you have a hard time returning good for evil, first of all, that should be your practice. That should just be what comes natural to you. When somebody's a jerk to you, you should have the natural response of being nice. When somebody cuts you off and flips you off and honks the horn at you on the road, your response should be to be gracious, 
to whoever that is, not cuss them out, flip them off, tailgate them. Like we just need to have habits where we say, this is what God wants us to do, and we just practice it. That's what we do. Uh, going to church, for example, we just go to church every single week. You want to know where somebody is? It's easy. If it's Sunday morning, they're in church because that's a priority in their life. It's just what they do. So that's one kind of practice. But the other thing is, are you rehearsing and trying? And when somebody says, when somebody does something and you treat them in a way that God says don't treat them, or when you get angry, you have a quality in your life that's not supposed to be there, do you take a step back and say, okay, this is what I did. This is what God said I was supposed to do. And one of the ways that I used to practice things is I would go back and do it again. So if I said something to somebody that was unkind, and I thought, okay, that was wrong. I was supposed to say something encouraging. Then I would go back to them, and I would say, hey, I'm really sorry for this thing that I said. This is what I should have said. And then I said the right thing. And you just, no matter how many times you fail, you just confess, you repent, you do it again. Let's look at a list of some things that we need to be practicing. Um, it says this, therefore an overseer, this is verse 2, must be above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Titus says it this way, an overseer must be above reproach, not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright. So this word for above reproach, that is an overarching, that, that appears three times in those two passages. That's an overarching quality, and it just means there's nothing that you could grab a hold of in this person's life. It's an overall description of a person who's just, just faithful. They love the Lord. They just want to do the right thing. Um, God has their heart doesn't mean they never fail. If we needed leaders who never failed, there wouldn't be any. But it means that God has our heart. We care about pleasing him. Whenever we blow it, we confess, we repent, and we get back on track. Um, the Bible describes two people that way. Uh, God describes Noah as blameless in his generation. It says this, there are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, he was a righteous man. That means he cared about doing the right thing. You want to know something? Nobody in Noah's generation was righteous. He was the only one. And we think, man, we, we're, we live in a sinful world. Things are hard. No, things were much worse in Noah's day. You could be the only person who's faithful. You're not dependent on, all oh, people around me have to be faithful. No, you could be faithful alone. Noah was. Um, he was a righteous man. He cared about doing the right thing. Uh, he walked with God. That is a relationship thing. He loved God. That's what drove his behavior was, God, you have my heart. The Bible also tells us that Job was a blameless man. It says he was upright. That means he pursued what was right. He feared God. He had a reverence for God. By the way, that is a personal relationship with God. He cared about what God thought. He was turning away from evil. So he cared about what God thought. And when there was wrong, when he did something wrong, when there was opportunities for sin, it wasn't just that he pursued righteousness. He avoided evil. Now, blamelessness, by the way, is for every Christian. 
Psalms and Proverbs is full of exhortations to be blameless. The New Testament is full of exhortations to be blameless. It's not perfection, but it is repentance and faithfulness. It is not personal blindness. Uh, There are plenty of people who they feel like they're blameless because they're totally blind at the things in their life. They can see flaws in everyone else. Uh, They create all kinds of problems, and then they blame everyone else. We don't want people in leadership, and we don't want to be Christians who are blind to things in our own life. Not people who hide things. Well, we're blameless because there's all kinds of sin, but we would never mention it. We want to do everything we can to keep it secret. We tell our kids when they're going to church, don't tell your youth leaders anything about our family. It was really, that, that was a challenge sometimes for us because we were not perfect. But I want to emphasize our kids weren't perfect. And a lot of times when they were mad at us, it was their fault. But they would go, they would go tell their youth leaders, oh, man, you won't believe my parents. And they would tell this terrible story about us. And we would think, man, that's not true. Um, but you know what? We never discouraged our kids from talking about anything. We never went and corrected things. We wanted them talking to other people about what was going on in their life. We wanted them to have other people that would speak into their life. And we just hoped that our youth leaders had read that passage that says when you hear the first one who speaks seems right until you hear the other side. So we just kind of assumed, well, hopefully they can put that in their filter. But I don't actually even know if they did put it in their filter, and it didn't matter. Because what was more important is not hiding things in our life, but that as a family and that our kids, that we were pursuing God loving us and we were pursuing obedience and we were pursuing faithfulness and that our kids were learning to involve other Christians in their life spiritually and how they were doing. And that was more important than what people thought about us. So we don't want people who hide. We want people who are humble. Um, That's what we're looking for. So sober-minded, let's just talk about what some of these qualities are. Sober-minded is a spiritual seriousness. It's recognizing that there are spiritually significant things that happen. it's, It's somebody who looks around and goes, as a parent, this is one way this would come out, Um, actually it's spiritually significant who you choose to have as friends. Some of the places that you're going are spiritually significant. We're sober-minded. We think about life as it is, and we go, no, this is a place where damaging things can happen. Don't go there. It's where we are smart enough to step in and say, no, you will not go down that path. It's to recognize that there are spiritually significant things in life and to be sober-minded about that. One of the things is just as we're talking to people, are we laying a foundation for the gospel? Do we recognize that the people who sit next to us in church don't just need religion? They need to know Christ. Do we approach Sunday morning with a sense of spiritual urgency, recognizing that when a visitor shows up, how they're treated, how they're greeted is significant. We don't just show up on Sunday morning, oh, where's my friends? No, we recognize that sometimes small things have a spiritually significant um, place in life. We're sober-minded. I think sober-minded also means we ignore the things that don't matter. We're not nitpicking people. We realize addressing this issue is insignificant, and if I do that, They're not going to listen to me when I talk about something that is spiritually significant. So it's just recognizing spiritually serious things. Self-controlled. 
That's a person who is in control of their emotions and their behavior. Don't just always do what we feel like doing. It's self-discipline to say, these are the things I need to do. Can you make yourself do what you're supposed to do? Can you stop yourself from doing things that you aren't supposed to do? Respectable. That's a person who lives a life that you can respect. A person who exercises wisdom in living. That's a person who just says, hey, this is what God says, and I'm going to do what God says. That, that leads to a respectable life, hospitable. Hospitable is loving towards strangers. You know, there's some people that they get in their little church groups and they got their five friends. It's, it kind of feels like junior high, click, junior high girl click stuff. We got our five friends. We don't want anybody else to come here because if they do, it'll ruin it. We just want our friends. And there's people that aren't hospitable. They, they don't view and just go, no, uh, I love my friends. And guess what? If you're a new person, I want to love you too. And guess what? See how much we love each other? Join us because you can have the same kind of loving relationship. We're hospitable. We reach out. We care. We love other people. Not violent. See, violent people are, have no self-control. Uh, they're not loving toward other people. They're willing to hurt other people. Um, God wants people who are self-controlled and loving, not violent, um, not quarrelsome. You know, there are some people, they could fight about anything. And uh, we don't want leaders and we don't want to be Christians that fight about everything. And one of the things it says about not being violent, but gentle. Do you know what gentle is? Gentle is not passive. Gentle is powerful. Uh, gentle is the right application of power. I, I saw this video of an elephant. I think there was like this little seal that came up or so, some kind of a little animal that was next to this elephant. Big, massive, heavy, powerful elephant. And he just like, I think it was either his trunk or his feet, just like gently moves this animal out of the way so it's not hurt. See, that's gentle. It's not weakness. It is power under control. It's like a powerful horse that a rider gets on, and he just does exactly what he's supposed to do. So we're not looking for weak leaders, but we're looking for people who don't just take their power and strength and harm people with it. Not addicted to wine. It's not a, not a drunkard. Now, the Bible's very clear that drinking alcohol is not a sin. And I hear people say things like, um, wine in the Old Testament wasn't wine, and you'd have to drink from 9 to noon to get drunk, except um, Noah got drunk, um, by the way, he was blameless, but he did get drunk. So he had this weak, this weak moment in his life. Lot got so drunk, his daughter slept with him, and he didn't even know it. I mean, that's a whole other story. Um, there's a ton of people who got drunk in the Bible. So wine was wine. Drinking's not a sin, but abusing alcohol is. And that's part of self-control. That's part of um, under living life with reverence. And there's a lot that we could say about alcohol, but we don't want to pick leaders that their lives are dominated by alcohol. Here's a fifth thing. It's a person who has an ability to communicate Scripture. It says it this way in 1 Timothy 3.2. It says, able to teach. It says, it, it says this in Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Um, we want leaders who are people who just read the Bible every day. You know, I went to seminary, 
and um, studied the Bible. I went to college. I got a college degree. I was a Bible major. Then I went to seminary and studied the Bible more. And I, you know, I just, I really devoted myself to those things. And after all was said and done, um, we would be going on this youth trip and we'd have some youth leaders. We'd play Bible trivia. Who do you think everybody wanted on their team? You think it was me? <laughs> I'm Check. Isn't God good? Time to wrap it up. Um, no, there was this lady named Adele Kanako. Should I should be saying people's name on the internet? And uh, Kathy Wisner. So these these are <laughs> these are like these just Joan. You know these people. Um, everybody wanted them on their team. You want to know? They were just a couple moms. And every day they read the Bible and they taught their kids the Bible. And the truth is they knew the details of all the Bible stories better than everything because they just read the Bible every day. And, and if I was picking who I wanted on my team, I'd pick them instead of me. Um, the greatest gift you give yourself is every day just pick up the Bible and read it. That's not for experts and pastors and people with degrees. No, it's for every Christian that just picks up the Bible and just reads it. Um, that's what makes people able to teach. Now, there's a, there's, some people say this is the only gifting, the only gifting thing, but this is one of the things I think about that, yes. I'm the pastor. I've been specially gifted to teach, which puts me above everybody else. The rest of you, the, if you think things are different, you're not the pastor. I'm trained. I'm specially gifted. I'm not saying that God doesn't specially gift people, but I think every single person can lead, learn to teach. Every single person can say, I want to know God's word and I can teach that. And I've seen people that were bad teachers that have worked really hard and become better teachers. And the other thing is that God requires that every single person disciple. And if you're discipling, that means that you're teaching. And that doesn't mean everybody has to get up and be a speaker. But I think everybody needs to grow and develop these qualities in their life. All right. We're going to wrap it up. Um, I want to spend some time right now. We're going to close by celebrating the Lord's Supper. These things are very important for spiritual leadership. They're significant. We need to be diligent in those things. Uh, you guys just got two sermons in one week. I hope you appreciate that. You got, got double your money, your money's worth. But, you know, one of the things I think is so important is for us to remember there are external things that we work on in life, but ultimately... Um, our standing before God is not based on our behavior. That, that is an act of love. That's something that flows out of our life. Spiritual maturity is important. Being a person that just trusts what God says and, and just says, I'm going to do it because I know it's what's best and it's how I love God. That's important. But our standing before God is not based on our behavior. It is not based on us being good enough. It is based on the work of Christ. That's what makes us so merciful and gracious and forgiving is because every one of us lives in God's mercy and grace. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. 
And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. It goes on and it says, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us the wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors, and God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. You and I are right with God because of Jesus, the sacrifice that he made. And then it says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins, so that we could be made right with God. And it goes on, and it says that we get the credit for the righteous life that God lived. Jesus got the credit for our sin. That is what our standing is based on, and that's what we celebrate every time we take the Lord's Supper. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. Let me read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink. Let's drink. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Lord, thank you for the grace and mercy that we have in you. Lord, I ask that you would help each of us to live faithful lives, that we would pursue that, not because we want a position somewhere or because we want credit from people, but, Lord, because we love you. And, Lord, because we know that honoring you and obeying you is the best way to live, that brings your blessing into our lives. God, help us to be committed to communicating your grace to the people around us to demonstrate it. And Lord, thank you for your forgiveness that we never need to, need to shrink back in shame, that we can boldly go into your presence. We can ask forgiveness knowing that we'll have it. Lord, help us to be a church family that reflects your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. And Lord, help us to be gentle, not harmful, not violent, not quick-tempered, but, Lord, that we would be willing to use power sometimes to, to stand before people and challenge them to love you and to obey you. God, help us to use that strength the way you want us to, the way that you use it in our life. We just ask that you would just really bless everybody here this week, that you'd help us to honor you and to love you and to obey you in your name. Amen.